I wanted to buy the Prusa printers, and so they're I got a fifteen hundred dollar grant, but they're a thousand if you buy them built, and they're seven fifty if you build them yourself. So I thought, all right, uh, with some students, we'll we'll mess around with it, and we bought um, two of the kits, and then you know spent like fourteen hours on each machine, and I'm <laughs> yeah. thinking I probably would have wanted to pay two hundred fifty bucks. To, <laughs> to, This is session 20 of This Should Work, an interview with Jeff Sullen, and the third part of our Makerspace interview series for This Should Work. Uh, Jeff is the creator and manager and teacher at Chicago Public Schools Lane Tech Makerspace, uh, probably the the most well-known makerspace in the city. Um, and also, Jeff is a, a, a huge contributor to, to the local community as, as well as the international community in all sorts of maker and makerspaces things. Um, I really respect Jeff and all the work that he's done over the past, I really don't even know how long, decade plus of, of work um, as an educator and as a, a uh, computer science teacher and makerspace person. And I really enjoyed this conversation uh, with him. Um, and, and it's really great to get the insight into how, how Jeff thinks about makerspace things in, in um, I, I don't want to say K-12 institutions, but, but high school institutions, because he's probably one of the first people to, to have done it there. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. And um, as always, uh, subscribe. You can do that on iTunes and Overcast and SoundCloud and all that other stuff. And, um, you know, just keep listening. All right, without further ado, this is session 20, an interview with Jeff Solon. Okay, so this is session 20 of This Should Work. So you got the number 20, Jeff. Oh, really? um, with, with Jeff Solon, who's a computer science engineering instructor at Lane Tech. Um, Jeff runs their makerspace there. Uh, also, recent award recipient from NCWIT. Um, so, congratulations Thank on that. Thank you very much. I like to talk about that too, but that's a huge accomplishment. Yeah, thank you. Um, and and also pr- the purveyor of of uh, uh, Solon Systems, right? Yes, that's correct. Um, <laughs> so that, that might be another fun fun topic to talk about. Is, is that about right, or is there anything you want to add? No, that pretty much. Um, I'm sure my wife and kids would have all kinds of other titles for me, uh, <laughs> but but yeah, that's um. There's there's one uh, other um, sort of bizarre spinoff. Uh, career I have, which is emceeing and hosting tattoo conventions. <laughs> but, okay, but, but, uh, but it's very it's it's tech related only in a way that um, software I developed with a student of mine um, from years ago uh, is used for uh, judging competitions, and so and we we're still partners on that, so we still work on the software together. Um, well, that's that's interesting. So you you actually worked with a student at your school. Uh, to 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 build something that you currently use in like other commercial right. endeavors, yeah. and it was like 13 years ago. So we oh, wow. we um, developed it to make it easier and more fair, and and have have competitions scored um, fairly for the contestants and for the uh, easy for the judges and <clears throat> and uh, fair for the artists that are entering their work. And so we developed a, a software platform for it and um, started using it. It's been used at probably close to 30, 30 different tattoo conventions over the past uh, like 12 or 13 years. What's it called? It's called Competition Judge. Um, and so we licensed it out, uh, and it can be used really for scoring anything, which is kind of crazy. It can be used for um, tattoos, but it can be used for cakes or cars, or um, there was discussion about using it for a yo-yo competition at one point. Okay. Um, so it's basically anything that needs to be scored <clears throat> on a, on a variety of like criteria um, and different categories. And so um, it was a really random thing, um, but you know, random things are fun. And that, uh, that student was a, a student of mine in a computer science class uh, years ago. He went on to get a degree in computer science um, and is now a software engineer. And so we still work on that on that together and just kind of tweak it when needed. And he's, he's become a, a good buddy of mine. Yeah. How, how special is a student too, to be able to work on, you know, kind of a, an outside in, uh, industry project that, um, you know, most students probably don't get access to that at, at the high school level, I would imagine. Um, yeah, or it was at least, really cool. Yeah. yeah. 
and he uh, he's super talented. Um, he has uh, CP, uh, cerebral palsy, so he um, has had to deal with issues from that, you know, and and being sort of judged by it. A lot of people don't really realize that CP affects your motor skills, but not your cognitive skills. And he's a um, really impressive um, software engineer, and he was really good when he was in high school. Um, and so we started by just making the application sort of a local thing um, on computers, and we'd store it in a file and then collect all the files and then have a program that kind of ran through and calculate everything. And gradually, in time, it became web-based, and now it's been a web app for a number of years, and we can brand it for the show and um, and tweak it however it's, however it's needed. So it's usually run on tablets um, at shows like a, either on like an Amazon Fire tablet or, a, or an iPad. Um, it's come a long way. We're, pr- we're, we're proud of it. It's, um, it's, uh, like I said, it's kind of a, a random yeah. side, side gig, but, um, those are the fun ones too. So, yeah. So that kind of segues very interestingly, uh, not, I hope interestingly, at least into a question <laughs> that I like to ask, um, uh, a lot of folks who come on it, which is, um, uh, a lot of the people who I interview, uh, typically, um, I don't know what, if it's because I'm drawn to them or, or what, but they're typically doing a lot of work uh, that involves either working with other people or for other people. Um, and very infrequently do they have a project that they're working on solo for themselves, not that it's going to be for anybody else or, or anything for a community of people or anything like that. And so the question I like to ask just to get started is, are you working on something now or is there something recent where, where it's just for you, just just your own kind of passion project that wasn't for a community of people was just, was just kind of, you know, scratching your own itch. Yeah. Um, I try to, I try to challenge, challenge myself, um, to do things that don't make sense to me, um, or that, uh, that I, that I'm interested in, but I, I don't, I know that I don't have like the total ability to do it. And I, I learn a lot that way. Um, so, I mean, a couple of little side personal projects that I'm involved with. Um, one is I, I made a, I want to learn more about th- the physical, physical prototyping um, or physical hardware type stuff, like our, with uh, microcontrollers and all that, um, that I like to mess with. And so I made a voice controlled fireplace remote that works through IFT and, and um, it's an Amazon Echo device. And, uh, so I'm able to like turn my fireplace on and off and I, I le- learned a lot by messing with that. And I'm pretty sure most people aren't interested in it, but I was interested in it and, um, did a, a similar kind of project with a ceiling fan remote for our master bedroom. And so I was messing with that a bit. Um, and then probably most recently, as of like a day ago, um, I was trying to install lights outside my house, um, new external lights, um, and the way that the builders built our house, they didn't do the proper um, electrical box and the wall. And so the lighting fixture I got wasn't able to, it doesn't, doesn't work there because there's no room for the wires and wire nuts and stuff like that behind the fixture. So I've been working with Onshape and doing some more 3D modeling stuff, which I'm, I'm not great at, but I'm getting better at. And so I just sort of challenged myself to um, design uh, a custom sort of spacer box for this particular light in my house and then 3d print it. And so I just did the, I just printed it yesterday and I went with the, you know, measure, measure twice, cut once <laughs> <laughs> measure twice, print once, um, kind of thing. It actually, um, worked out really well. I'm just doing tweaks on it and just kind of trying to do some other things in, in on shape that are more complicated just so I can get better at it. But, um, but yeah, I mean, making like a custom random little spacer for an external light fixture doesn't sound very exciting, but it's fun for me to um, to challenge myself on that tool and 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 get better at it. So it sounds are, like, yeah. yeah, it sounds it sounds like um, a lot of your projects. One, uh, they've, it fits a couple different patterns that I, I've been noticing. One, you're kind of. Uh, well, I, I guess I'll just ask you: Why are you building this stuff instead of buying it, or, or you know, having somebody else do it for you? Um, maybe that's that's where I'll start, and then I have a couple follow up questions too. No, that's a that's a um, that's a good question because I think that actually ties into my my soul and systems work too. Um, I like to, I think probably a, a, a 
originally it might have even started out with just I like saving money on stuff and figuring things out my own. So I am kind of I do have a kind of a DIY spirit with that. Um, but I did try and go buy the right box and the right parts, and it just didn't work right. And then I just thought, well, if it doesn't work right for me, then maybe with my skills, I could build something that would work better or would work perfectly for it. Um, so I, I like to, um, I don't know, I like to take on, uh, I guess I like, I just like the challenge of trying to figure things out on my own. Um, I try when I'm thinking about something, if I can pay someone to do it, <laughs> uh, and it's not something that would break the bank. I do at times think what, like, what's the, I don't know if opportunity cost is the right thing, the right phrase, but like, um, you could be playing with your kids instead of, yeah, uh, right. right. Yeah. yeah. Like I, so I got a grant recently for 1500 bucks and I bought, I wanted to buy a couple new 3d printers cause I'm not satisfied with the ones that we have. And I wanted to buy the Prusa printers. And so they're, I got a $1,500 grant, but they're a thousand if you buy them built and they're 750 if you build them yourself. So I thought, all right, um, with some students, we'll, we'll mess around with it. And we bought, um, two of the kits and then, you know, spent like 14 hours on each machine. And I'm <laughs> yeah. thinking I probably would have wanted to pay 250 bucks. To, 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 <laughs> and it was an awesome experience for the kids. and It's been great. But like, and then at, at some point when you're running a big space and you're doing a lot of it by yourself, um, you start thinking like, for, if I only pay $250, I could not do this. And so I try and, um, try and balance that stuff out. But like in the, with my, my side hustle, Solon Systems, um, I, I do a lot with home audio, like uh, home audio and video distribution and networking and smart home stuff. And I've been doing this for about 20 years. And so I do a lot of custom work and design everything from new houses all the way to like retrofitting stuff. And um, and when I, I started messing with this a long time ago, like, I don't know, 15 plus years ago for smart home, I had a server set up in the house and a microphone and um, you could come in and you could say system was like the keyword and mm-hmm. it would make like a ding. It was kind of like having a, you know, like a, a smart voice device before it was happening. And my wife would crack up about it cause it was never right. Like it was <laughs> the, the, the big joke here is I tried to impress a friend that was visiting and I said, watch this. And, um, I said, um, system and it dinged. And then I said, what's the weather? And it said, um, adding cheese to the grocery list. And, <laughs> and so now that buddy, even if we still see, see him, he's like 15 years ago, he still sees me. He's like, adding cheese to the grocery list. And I'm like, <laughs> I get it, man. But I was ahead of the curve, I swear. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, yeah. So like it ties into, I like doing stuff myself and trying to figure it all out. But that teaches me a lot about um, about the systems that are already built. And I think it helps me evaluate what, what works well and what doesn't when I – try and do the cheap um like hacky way through stuff at the same time it sounds well cheap hacky way i don't know if that's fair to you though because it sounds as well like you're you know most people would be happy with it's good enough right so so you know if this doesn't work to meet my exact needs whatever i'll you know i'll deal with it and it sounds like you know for you you know maybe the -the off-the-shelf thing um, you know, you could say it's good enough, but you won't, you, you know, you want to make it fit your environment a, a little bit more, um, uh, with, with a little bit more intention. Is that, it, or is that, is that fair or is that? Yeah, no, that's fair. I mean, I like doing that with clients too. So I, I really like, I really like customizing things or making things better for, for people. I think even in my company, it, I really like, I, I, I joke sometimes that I'm glad I'm not a roofer. Because I feel like with roofing, like everything was fine and then it wasn't. And then you spend thousands of dollars to get it back to where it was. And it's fun to be able to, um, I mean, people spend money with me, but it's fun to get like, they get really excited about the new stuff. And so I really like being able to design and build systems that are, that work really well for like for that particular person. It might be different for somebody else. It might be different for me, but I like to um, fine tune things so that it makes sense and it's a a, a positive experience for whoever mm. it is. And so, I mean, I, I look at that with education too. I want to, if I could, I would want to fine tune every student when it's pretty difficult to do that when you have 160 students that you see every day. But 
but I, um, I like to be as flexible as possible so that the, the end result of working with me, whether it's learning from me or having something built by me or whatever it is, is, is a, um, is a positive experience. So, huh. And is that, I'm trying to get to, is it, so I have a, we, I interviewed, I think maybe in episode eight or, or something like that. One of my, one of my friends, his name's Nate Madsen. Nate runs a company called Obstructure, Obstructures. They make um, like these award-winning um, uh, full aluminum body guitars and stuff like that. Cool. I like the name of that company. It's pretty cool. Um, yeah. He's, you guys would get along quite well, I think. Um, and he, but he's talking about this, um, this lamp that he has in his office and how he he ended up completely redesigning the way a lamp would work. I, I hope I'm remembering this story accurately, um, because it, it, the lamp wasn't giving him the exact kind of light that he wanted. So it was just like he, he described it as effing unacceptable. Like it's this is just this is I was I you know I sat on it for ten years and then it was just unacceptable for him. And I think that there's something to that and, and something to what you're talking about too about like. Uh, and I feel this way sometimes too, that technology should be subservient to the people, but oftentimes it feels like we, um, we allow our values to be driven by the technology instead. So we're, we're okay with, you know, whatever it's doing to us, um, rather than trying to, to change it and control it. And I don't know if that's, again, I'm making wild assumptions here, but I'm just kind of talking out loud. No, I think, yeah. I think it makes sense. I mean, I go back and fight back and forth on my fight with technology and, also having two teenagers changes things a little bit um, and seeing sort of the impact it has and on society. So sometimes I get really mad at it, but then I know I'm a big part of it or I'm not a big part of it, but I know that I play a role in it. Um, I, I love like tweaking and messing with stuff and doing all these fun things. But then I also get really frustrated at times about how uh, integrated it is into just like my own, even like your, my own mental health. I mean, I'd, I was sitting there the other day and I was, I got into that sort of, um, infinite scroll hell where you're, I was on like Reddit on my phone. I just kept going and going and going and I got really frustrated. I just like slid my phone across the floor. So it was away from me. Yeah. And I was like, I just need to, I'm, I'm 43 years old and I can't put a phone down sometimes and it. And that frustrates me. Um, so I know that like thinking about my 16 year old and 13 year olds brains that if it's hard for a 43 year old, it's probably hard for a, for a teenager. And, um, so I even took that to start like a, a few years ago when on my, right after my, like when I was 40, um, I picked up, uh, a Rubik's cube and started getting, basically I've had this thought it was around, around Christmas. And I thought, I'm 40 and I've never solved a Rubik's cube. So I was like, I, I really, I want to do something about it. And I figured I'm just going to do it. And so I got on YouTube and started watching some videos and started figuring it out to me like four hours to get my first solve. But, but then I, I just started getting really into it and it was a really nice way to step away from everything technology and just kind of um, do something analog and keep my brain going, but, but step away from the tech for a minute. And I got really into it and I, this is three years now and I still, I still, I, I got really into speed cubing and I do it uh, every day. Sure. Um, is that like a, like a flow like state kind of thing? You, you kind of lose track of time and, and everything that's happened around you. And so it's, yeah, kind of, it's a happy yeah. place thing for me. And then yeah. I like, I taught my, um, well, I bribed my children to learn. Mm -hmm. um, I was surprised at how much money it took, but I bribed them. <laughs> <laughs> I, I bribed them and, uh, and my, um, got both of them doing it. And so my daughter, could solve in like uh, like around a minute 10 minute 20 and my son got down to around 50 seconds solve and and then i thought this is awesome and i turned to my wife and i said you gotta learn you gotta let me teach you you gotta learn to speed cube because we'd be like a speed cubing family i think that would be <laughs> the coolest thing in the world and she looked at me and she was like oh my god i totally don't care about that at all um she's yeah. super uninterested so uh three-fourths of us but um and my kids don't do it much anymore but i still i still do it a lot and so and i've actually started teaching like workshops on it because i love showing other people that it's a lot easier than they think it is and um i've gotten a few people to get really into it and i've i've probably in a workshop given taught about maybe 150 or so people and um bought a classroom set and i want to teach my students because i think it's a really cool introduction to algor algorithmic thinking and mm. computational thinking and 
fun stuff like that. So yeah, I got, I got, um, I got into that just to get away from tech a little bit sometimes. Well, it's interesting because it seems like, and at some point I want to talk about all the stuff that you're doing in, at Lane Tech, and maybe this is a good way to, to kind of start getting into that too, is that a lot of your, um, uh, for instance, you did the, um, the Chicago flag project um, a couple of years ago or something like that, um, where you, you know, you had students, you know, each kind of creating a modular component to, to um, the flag what, using some digi- kind of digital fabrication technology of the choice, but you can correct me if I'm, I'm wrong, but I, I, w- I want to ask a question, which is like that to me that, yeah, they're using a digital fabric, a tool, right. To do that, a, a machine, mm-hmm. but there's also an analog component to that. And it seems like a lot of the projects that you have um, might be related to like, how do you bring the, the, the digital uh, uh, kind of uh, teaching um, into the real analog world and and encourage students to think about not just uh, computational thinking as something that happens on a computer, but something that right. happens in, in your mind, whether it's a, a Rubik's Cube or, you know, a, a piece of art where you're all collaborating and, uh, it together. What What is it about that? Why, why, why are you driven towards that? That's a good question. I'm not... Um... I think that I think that's one of the things I really love about the material, like this class, is the ability to see that problem solving that problem solving can bridge the digital and physical world, and that you can create physical products with digital tools. It was, I think that's probably what really excites me about it is that you, when you, I think there's something different about having a thing in your hand that you made or like a product that you put together that you can touch um, just like general mechanics, even uh, this is probably not a too far of a fetch, but I, at, at when I was taught at Northside prep, I was there for 11 years and I, I taught a, um, a colloquium course, which is like a three hour course once a week, pass fail course. I taught it on rebuilding vintage motorcycle engines and I'd never done it before. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. So I was like, I'm going to, might as well take a bunch of kids for the, for the ride. And, um, and in the time there I ended up rebuilding about 15 motorcycles. Um, but I think that got me even more interested in seeing like that working with your hands and problem solving. It was very technical stuff, but it was, there's something about understanding, understanding a problem that you can touch and mm. like, a like a, a transmission or on an engine itself, just even a simple internal combustion engine can sound really complex. And if you look at like a blown out diagram of all the parts and the gears and all that stuff, it's very hard to understand what's actually happening. But if you look at a transmission working, kind of spin the crankshaft and watch the gears interact with each other, you, you get it like right away. I think there's something to be said for, um, for working with your hands on problems and, I have a lot of experience in the digital world as a, you know, as, with a software background and all that kind of stuff. So I think once I saw that there was an opportunity to work with digital tools that became or, or turned into physical products, I think that got me really engaged in it. And I never really felt, um, I never really felt like I was a visually creative person. Like I, I could see stuff and think that looks good or that doesn't look good. Like I could be, um, I could be judgmental, <laughs> no problem. <laughs> like even walking into like with like interior design, I can walk into a place and be like, this looks really good. Or this is a really comfortable environment. And I can walk into another place and be like, I don't really like this, but I'm really bad at knowing what to do to make it the way that's good. Yeah. Um, and, <laughs> and so I've never, I've never felt very confident in my, in my visual art kind of stuff. I'm a musician. So with that kind of stuff, I'm comfortable, but not with visual art. And, um, starting to mess with like laser cutters and 3d printers and these things, um, gave me a, gave me more confidence in being able to create stuff that I was proud of, or that I would look at and think, I really like the way that looks or the way that functions. And so when I started messing with it, it unlocked something in me, like a creative aspect to me that I didn't really realize was there. And it, when that happened, I think it made me really want to, um, help students experience the same thing. And so I, I, I love, working with kids that don't have confidence in that and showing them that they can have confidence in it or showing them that they actually can create stuff that's really cool and be proud of the work that they did. 
And if they're given the right tools and the right environment and the right structure and the right understanding and support and um, t- teaching the iterative process that, you know, you don't always make something and it works right away. That it takes time and iterations to kind of work through it. And I think that the world of making is perfect for that. And it's, um, so I, re- I really enjoy, I really enjoy teaching that kind of stuff. And whenever I design my projects, um, and this has changed a lot. I've changed my curriculum and my course and my lab and everything over a lot over the past five years. But um, when I design projects, I try really hard to put um, constraints in because constraints are real. And sometimes they're, I don't even have to create them. I mean, they're just part of the, part of the environment, but um, I want them to learn the, the process and be a part of the overall project, but the content I try and make it so that it can be whatever it is that they're passionate about. And I, I think the world of making makes that very, very easy. Um, sort of like write a software application that you love, like you, about something you'd want to do. I mean, that's, that's cool. Um, but it's really cool to say, all right, you're going to use the laser cutter, but you know, I get kids that are really into I don't know, their car or whatever it is that they really care about culture or anything. And they can, they can use the tools and the design tools and learn everything, workflow and tool chain and everything, but they can still make something about something they're passionate about. And I, that makes it a fun environment, I think, for them to learn. And it definitely makes it fun for me to teach in. Yeah, that's, that's something that, um, you know, that I talk to my students about at DePaul too, which is, is that um, like we have like the way that we experience the world is kind of mediated by how we perceive things, you know, um, in a way. But, but there's also like this reality beyond all of that that exists. And when you work with materials and objects in the real world, they have a tendency to pu- push back against, you know, whatever preconceptions you have about mm-hmm. how things work, you know? So yeah. like wood has a, has a grain and that grain flows in a specific direction and it wants to be used that way. And so it doesn't matter whether or not you think it should be used some other way, you know, or, or metals or, or whatever other kind of materials you think. And so there's something that's powerful i think at a very high level um when you are able to you to engage with tangible things that um that force you to think outside of yourself force you to think outside of like how how you experience the world um and i you know i don't i don't know what what that gets to necessarily but it's it's an interesting like philosophical yeah and i think um with with all with all the like it could still be expensive to have a maker lab, but you can definitely do a whole ton of making um, with lower cost tools and, and in the grand scheme of things. And I think um, I like getting across to the kids that the thing that you might want might not be anything anybody else wants, but that you have the capability. If you have the right understanding and you know you learn the right stuff, you can make something for yourself that might solve a problem for you. Or you might be able to solve a one-off problem for somebody else, which is even more exciting, I think, um, if you understand how to use those tools right. And one of the examples I tell them about is um, in the first year of my class, I had a project that was basically their final project was you had to you had to make. Let me think if this was oh, it was a, you had to find a client in the school, and the client could be anybody. It could be a department. It could be the whole student body. It could be a custodian. It could be a lunchroom staff, security, administration, a teacher, a department. Doesn't matter. And you had to interview them and um, and try and draw out needs and come up with something that you can make to make things better for them. And one of the students just um, used me as their client. So I was like, okay, I can. I'll do this with you. And um, and they did some really good questioning to kind of draw out something that. I, I wouldn't have thought of it. if somebody just came up to me and said, what do you need to make things better? I'd be like, I don't know, like, a pile of cash or something. So guaranteed health. <laughs> um, but they, they asked me some good questions and they said, you know, when you come in to work, what do you do? And so I, I started answering their questions and what we came up with was um, I, I drank tea in the morning and I had like a, like a thermos thing or whatever, a travel mug. And I would always, for, I said, I always forget it. And then I, and, and I also wanted like a coat rack or something. So anyway, they ended up billing me this thing that go, that was like mounted by my door that held my tea and hung up my, hung up my coat. And I was thinking, that's probably something that nobody else really wants, but it really solves a problem for me. And it was right. really customized to me. And um, it was a it was a good a good example of what I was trying to get across to them. So it's kind of cool. Um, 
but that you there might not be a million of those to be made but maybe it's just one and that's okay right and that fits kind of what we were talking about before about um you know building things that fit your environment well and serve serve you know the individual which you know it's that's super interesting it's also interesting that you're talking a lot about um end product but i you know you know that before you were talking about um process right yeah and and oftentimes it's not even the end product that that's important at all. It, it's just that, uh, that the student learns. You know, you're talking about like the the iterative process. Um, so we're kind of talking about then design thinking or whatever you want to call it. And right. and so so you know in in the context of of speaking with other educators um, in you know who run other kind of maker spaces, whether at an, you know in higher ed or or um, at a nonprofit or something like that, uh, you know, it always comes back to talking about process and how, you know, uh, you know, sometimes you hear people talking about failure and, and things like that. And yeah, that's, wanna, yeah. That's a, so I'm glad you brought that up because there's, as part of the process, I'd, um, I want to throw in a, a, a pitch for, for like in my classes, I, I decided that I didn't want to use the word failure anymore. This is after yeah. some, some really good conversation with some people, but um, so the, the general thought was, um, that like, cause we hear this a lot, right? We hear fail, fail early, fail often and, yep. um, and failure is part of the process. And, um, you know, all these famous inventors failed, 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 failed. And so, um, I tried to, I, I'd make it a point to not use that word in my class for a couple of reasons. I, one is that it's a, a really, really heavy word and very heavy for certain people. Um, because it, it is a negative word and it can mean it can be associated with a lot of things that are really intense, like failure to pay your bills or failure to help your family or put food on the table or come through for somebody. And it's like, it is, it's hard to take a word with so much meaning and a negative air and a negative context and say, we're going to make that word positive just for this one, for this one thing. And so I try and, um, try to, well, I don't use that word in the class, and instead I just talk about it, like the, about process and about be, about iterations and about the iterative process, and like you said, design thinking and that kind of stuff. So I want them to get across get, get the idea across that like almost nobody created something cool and just did it and it worked the first time. It's just about about tweaking and redoing it. There's that you've seen even in my lab. There's a big mural on my wall, like a forty five foot mural, fifteen foot tall, that I worked on with a student designing designed it with a student, but the student did this whole mural. Um, and it's, to, and the whole point of it is to kind of get that idea across that you just sort of go in these, this circle of refining and, and tweaking and testing and until you get where you're happy with, and that might not be an end, but it might be a current end and you can always tweak it more later or whatever it is. But I, I, I really didn't want to try and retool this idea that you've like, you've got to screw it up because failure really means screw it up to me. And, and get, get with the idea that it's just part of the process. And I think it's really hard for, for kid. I don't want to say kids these days, cause that's a really cliche term, but I think it's hard for kids with the environment that they're, they're used to in schools of this concept of doing it, not only of doing it, not perfect the first time, but just that it is iterative because when they go and they do all their, their homework it's not supposed to be iterative. Maybe if you're in a writing class and you, you write a rough draft and then you come back, you know, you refine it, but they don't even see the connection often between that, that kind of stuff. And it, they, they're, they're so concerned with like getting it right and getting it right the first time that I think they, it hurts them and the ability to solve problems yeah. they're going to encounter in the future. If they can only take that approach of, I've got to do it and do it right. And it's got to be done right the first time. It's really not the way real learning happens. I think. Yeah, there's a there's a, a writer. His name is Venkatesh Rao. He runs this website called Ribbon Farm, um, and he's been writing recently on um, this idea that he's calling medi mediocratopia, <laughs> which is that we tell everybody to be excellent, but that's actually possibly the wrong approach. Like you know, always striving for excellence, or and, and that seems counterintuitive at first. Mm -hmm. But I mean, the argument he makes is is that. Um, when you're when you're always striving for perfection, perfection or, or or excellence, you're probably operating in an area that you're too comfortable in. Like in other words, you know, there you should have gone to the next level of of challenge where you're not that great anymore, and 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 experienced that. And so it's, I, a, I, it's well put. Yeah. 
I mean, I think that's why I, I like tooling around with all these things that I'm not, I like to put myself in positions where I'm not comfortable with what I'm, where I'm not good at what I'm doing so that I can get better at it. I mean, like, it's like a illustrator. I had to learn, all of a sudden I realized I was teaching stuff about design and I have no idea how to teach design. And I, I've been a computer science teacher for years and maybe software design, but I never, I didn't really realize I kind of accidentally fell into teaching real design stuff. And so, and then I'll, I need to learn some new tools like illustrator and, and we use that in the lab. And, um, there's times I, I mean, I still, I'll, I'll spend hours trying to do like something really simple. And then I find out there's a button for it, you know, like, Oh, <laughs> yeah. command, command A and click that button. I'm like, wow. Okay. Uh, yeah. but I think that the process of like, I don't, I still don't really want to know about the button yet. Like I, the process of working through it and trying to solve the problem without the button is really valuable, I think. Yeah. And then I, and then it's nice to know that there's a button that does it for me and I can do <laughs> that later. But I, I really learned a lot from just kind of like hacking at, hacking at stuff, doing it, doing it and messing it up and trying again, even though there might be a button that does it for me. Sure. Sure. There's a certain s- sense of like perseverance there or, or something that um, there's another book. I, and I know I'm all of a sudden like getting book heavy on, but uh, that's okay. I like to read. There's a, there's an author, his name's Tim Ingold. He wrote a book called making and then the four A's. I never get them right in, in the correct order, but it's art, archeology, span anthropology, and architecture. Oh, cool. um, and he talks about, uh, so, so the idea of thinking through making is, is that uh, by trying to, by, by engaging in the process of figuring things out, um, that itself is a is a form of thinking, and and that seems probably um, fairly obvious to to you, but there is a, a long tradition, particularly in in education, um, of of thinking being something that's solely done, you know, in the head, or uh, when you're teaching as well, it's it's um, you know the sage on the stage kind of yeah right? yeah the talking um, head up there just yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, so it's interesting to hear you talking, uh, you, you practice kind of the same thing that you're teaching, which is, um, you know, figure, f- figuring it out on the fly and, and, and using that as a thinking process as well. Yeah, I, d- I definitely like, even in my class, I try really hard to even, and I'm very honest with my students that, um, I, I try, I'm trying to teach them the same ethos of how I even built the lab. Like I'd never built a maker lab before and I screwed a lot of things up. And I try to limit the amount of impact the screw ups would have, but there's some things in there that are just that, that I, that need to be done better, or I'm always like tweaking it and changing it. And, and I, I kind of, I'm, I think I'm modeling it for them. It's not, it's not totally intentional. It's just how I, um, how I approach doing new stuff and building a lab and writing the curriculum and all that. So it's, it's very much like what I'm trying to teach them how to do is very much what I'm like, how the lab came about in the first place, I guess it's kind of yeah. hard to explain, but, um, the, the, I change the curriculum often. If I get comfortable in a place where it's like repetitive and I'm doing the same thing, I, I, I change it. This is where it's hard for me. I, I try really hard to share stuff out or I'll give anything I've done to anybody that wants to look at it. And I, I'm, I've never for a second hesitated to just give away any, anything. doesn't matter how many hours I spent on it. I like, I like to share stuff and, and help people bring that to other kids or, or even learn themselves or whatever. But, um, my stuff isn't very formal. Like I don't have people like, do you have lesson plans? I'm like, uh, eh, I mean, kinda. <laughs> so yeah. it's, it's hard for me to, I don't, by the time I would get something so structured to have like a really nice, like here's exactly what you do, lesson plan, standard alignment, blah, blah, blah. By that time I've, I've moved on to like, I've like tweaked it so much that's different now, or I want to do something else that sounds hard or more fun or whatever. So it, it's hard for me to share in a standard teaching, a yeah. standard like curriculum way. Um, so I feel bad about it sometimes. Like um, I have the documents that I use to help the students and with pro tips and requirements on the projects and all that kind of stuff. But those are very specific a lot of times to our environment or for our, our class or for that particular project. So I always share those out if people want them, but it's not very, um, it's not very reproducible sometimes because people are in different environments with different people. Yeah. Uh, but we're, 
we're working on a, a curriculum. It's a really awesome project that we've been doing for like four years now called the, we call the lane of things. And it's a spinoff of, I think I've told you about it before. Um, yeah. but it's a spinoff of the array of things, um, project. And so we were teaching students about using microcontrollers and low cost sensors, um, to build an array of nodes that collect data, like massive data sets, and then, um, aggregate all that data and do data analysis and data visualization with it. And we've been um, doing this off of a grant with Motorola for about four years now. And, um, last year we worked directly with the Chicago Cubs and we outfitted a a number of sensors and designed and built the number of sensors that were deployed at, at Wrigley field. Um, and this year we're bringing it back inside the school to do it in the school again at lane. And we wrote a, wrote a curriculum. Well, we're still putting it together, but we wrote a curriculum that we call the school of things because not everywhere is lane. Um, and it, it, the acronym works out. We call lane lane of things loft L O F T and school of things is soft, which is very nice. Um, but the, the the school of things curriculum we built into the grant to to teach teachers the curriculum so they can bring it to their students and um, and a, a series of professional development workshops and Saturdays and all this kind of stuff. So we have our first cohort that we're finishing up with now, um, and we're trying to publish that in a way that like any it's it's all free like anybody can take it. It's just not ready to be really distributed quite yet. Yeah. Um, but the idea is that we want more people to be able to sort of take this and and bring it to their students and mm. um, and so that's that's uh that's the closest I've come recently to trying to put things together in a way that <laughs> that someone can take and then right and then implement it in their own way. So it's been interesting thinking having to think through that. So let me ask you ask you some something that is I've kind of got a two part question for you, kind of based on that project, but also. You know the you know when you were talking before the pro- before you you mentioned the project about um, you know having challenges sharing some of your stuff because it seems like um, uh, number one um, you know what you're doing in, in a school um, is is something that m- many people might want to figure out how to do at their own educational institution and one of the challenges that I'm sure they'll run into is that they're doing things in some ways that are are, are divergent from how traditional education works mm-hmm. um, uh, in the classroom. Um, and, and then I guess my, my second question is then regarding the uh, s- soft. How do you, yeah, well, there you go. I'm, I'm, I'm that guy dancing right next to you now. Um, so how, how do you build that? Cause it's one thing to build a program and it's another to build a program that's replicable um, across many schools that might have uh, their own challenges in addition to the challenges that I was just talking about, which is, you know, these these barriers of, you know, when we built the, the idea realization lab at, at DePaul, one of the questions I got is how is this going to support curriculum? Um, because there's a traditional way of thinking about how spaces um, like maker spaces will, will support, um, you know, directly support what you're teaching. And, and of course we do do that, but, you know, my response was something that I learned at, at a conference that I went to which was, uh, you know, we have a gym in our basement and I don't remember having a conversation about how the gym supports curriculum. And, and that may or may not be the best answer. But anyways, so, so I, two questions. One is, um, how do you, you know, how do you uh, get buy-in, um, you know, at your own institution uh, when you might be doing things that are divergent from how people traditionally do, do things? And then two, when you're building a program like the one you're building, how do you build it in such a way that um, ensures that other people will be able to integrate it into what they're doing? All right. So because I'm a rambler and I, and I get off topic a lot, you might have to hold me to give me two questions. That's and cool. Then, and then, uh, so, so if you need to get me back on track, get me back on track. <laughs> <laughs> um, so on the first one on buy-in, um, a, 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 a huge part of that I think is administrative support. I can't, even I can't underestimate the importance of having of us being able to do what we were able to do by having administrative support like we did. So when we, we started our our computer science program, um, had one, one guy teaching computer science in in a large school and the school reached out and I started talking to them and they said, look, we want to, um, I wasn't even looking to leave the school I was at. And they said, we want to build, we want to expand, um, 
grow our program. We want computer science to be a pillar of the school. We want to um, give you creative freedom and creative input and new courses. And I mean, as a computer science educator, I was like, well, this sounds phenomenal. Um, and it was easy for me to jump ship and, and, and give it a go. Um, and that has since expanded. This is our sixth year sort of within this new of, of starting to build the program from when that was just one guy. And we now have 12 full-time computer science teachers, 12 full-time, uh, 12, 12 different courses that we offer um, with my, my maker lab class being one of them. Um, but we wouldn't have been able to grow like that if it wasn't for an administration that support us, um, trusted us and gave us the opportunity to try things and, and uh, not have them work out right and sure. need to tweak it. And so, that's a really a really big part of the buy-in. Um, I hadn't even the lab wasn't even totally my idea. Uh, along with my, my buddy uh, Dan at, at Lane, I just started thinking about. I started learning about making stuff, like the the sort of maker community through a, a wonderful group of people I'm involved with called OrdCamp, and I started learning about um, just what digital fabrication was there. And I was like, this is super fun and really cool. And I thought, I want to bring some hands-on stuff into my computer science classes. How do I do that? And I started thinking, okay, if I can get a little desktop CNC mill or 3D printer, I might be able to try and find ways to integrate those things into my standard computer science classes. And that's where I really got started. And and Dan and I went down and talked to Demir, who's um, a buddy of ours and also um, our like immediate boss, assistant principal of our department. And... Um, and say, what do you think about like helping us get a couple of these machines in so that we can, I can start messing with some of the stuff in my class. It sounds like it'd be really cool. And he was at the same time trying to think about what they might be able to do with this large space. Um, that was an old cafeteria. And before that, if you go back far enough, it was actually a foundry. Um, there's two foundries at Lane Tech. One was an oil-based and one was a water-based foundry. And my, mm. my room used to be a water-based foundry. And he's like, come with me. And he brings us down and he's like, what if uh, we'll figure out the way and the resources and funding, but what if you design and build um, a lab and this would be your room and write all the curriculum and do all this stuff? And I was like, holy crap. Right. Um, so it, it, that idea even kind of came about from just having support within the institution to try something new. And it wasn't like, you want to do this, go do it and make it perfect. And if it's not perfect, you know, it was like a very supportive, like, we trust you, tell us what you need and we'll, we'll help you make it happen kind of thing. Yeah. And so the, the buy-in there was, um, I think, really founded in having an environment that welcomed that. And I don't want to say anything bad about other institutions, but at the previous school that I was at, there was less active support for computer science. It was more passive support and having, having more active support makes a huge difference for me. And so that, yeah, that, that was, I think a big part of having the lab actually come to fruition and be a real thing. So let me ask a, a follow-up question of that, which is, okay, so now you've got the, the lab built and of course, whether, I mean, at, at DePaul numbers are important too, you know, whether it's, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, the rate at which students get hired out of, of college or in a K-12 institution, you've got tests and things like that, that students have to take. Mm -hmm. And one of the challenges that I've always faced is, okay, now I've got the support, you know, this, this space is here, we're teaching kids things. Um, and, and a lot of that revolves around process and teaching them process. How do you, in a traditional institution that, that values um, outcomes Justify right. all these things. Yeah, how do you justify process, <laughs> process in particular? Yeah, it's, it's a very tricky thing to to measure. Is yes, this student understands process. You know, you no, know, it's that's a really good question. Um, I might not even be able to answer it very well, but I can tell you. So I have had those questions, and and luckily it hasn't come directly from my administration. But I've had a ton of people visit my lab from other institutions, from other parts of the world, from schools, from you know, all over the board. And I've had people come in and say, how, how is this going to help them score better on tests? Right. And all I could think is, man, is that way off point? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and like, that's really what we've boiled down to is like, th this is great. Is that laser cutter going to help students score higher on the SAT? Cause that's, right. all, you know, or, or like what's, I need to know exactly what standards that aligns with. And, and, um, 
to my school and I guess administration or whatever is credit. Um, I haven't, I haven't gotten grilled on that. Um, I think that, so I'm, I think that part of what it is, is I think people come into the environment into my lab and they see, I think they can see and feel what's happening there to a point that helps them trust that the process is, that the process matters in a way that helps them get away from needing to um, show on paper why it matters. I've been lucky in that sense. I think that people come in and they're like, I hear it all the time. I've never had anybody come in my lab and be like, I hate this place. Wouldn't want to be in here. Um, wouldn't want to learn in here. And usually what I get is people, when I say people, I mean every kind of visitor from parents to students to faculty saying, this looks like a really great place. And um, kids look like they're really enjoying learning in here. And so I think it's probably, it's, I, I don't think I'd be able to document it. If someone put me to task on it and maybe that's the end, that'd be the end of days for me. But <laughs> if someone's like, I need to know now why this is helping kids score better on tests, I'm not going to be able to produce it. Um, right. but I, I, I really believe, I really believe in, and that doesn't really matter a lot. Right. But what I, I, I really believe that I'm helping them learn how to solve problems and that I'm not helping them learn how to solve maker problems or computer science problems or architectural problems or engineering problems. I'm just helping them learn how to solve problems. And even within our department, sort of the, the overall, overall overarching idea for our computer science department is that we are not trying to crank out computer scientists. We're trying to help students learn to not only produce new technology, but how to learn to use technology to solve bigger problems. And that these tools, computational thinking and, and learning aspects of computer science will help them be better whatevers, like right. better chefs, better architects, better pilots, better engineers, lawyers, uh, medical professionals, whatever. And so I think in 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 this environment, they're learning how to be better problem solvers at its yeah. core. And I really feel confident that that will help them solve problems like that are on tests or help them write better or help them in math or whatever it is. But it's really hard. Like I suck pretty bad at trying at, at like put, putting that on paper and justifying it. Right. Yeah. This is a problem that I run into too. Like I have qualitative stories, you know, I've got, I can tell stories of how, Same, yeah. uh, you know, like how, how successes, what successes have happened. Yeah. I got stories um, galore, but I don't have, yeah. Quantitative is tough for me. Right. I, mean, I got, I got, I got a kid that had like the record number of demerits at the school, um, not doing well in a variety of classes, but I couldn't get her to leave the lab. And she made some of the most beautiful projects I've ever seen come out of that space. And it'd be Friday night at like eight. And I'd be like, I got to go. Cause I got, you know, like kids and stuff and <laughs> I got, I got to, but it was something she was connecting with that environment and making really wonderful projects. And, um, that had a lot of meaning behind them and she was learning the tools and how to solve the problems, but she was making things that had a lot of meaning behind them. And I don't really know how to, um, I don't really know how to check that box or like, I don't know how to make that quantitative, I guess. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's the challenge I've, uh, I've seen when uh, trying to connect with other, other educators who might not be in such a supportive situation um, at their institutions. Is yeah, like, that's your, that's your follow-up question, right? That was the second yeah, part exactly. too. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're interlinked, right? So it's all I'm good. Pretty, I'm pretty proud of myself for remembering what your second question yeah. was. It's, it's not my style. <laughs> I'm glad you did. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's the, cause that's the follow-up then is like, okay, how do you make it reproducible? We find this valuable. We think that, you know, and I'm, I shouldn't be speaking for you. I find this valuable. I think that that all students should be able to have access to this stuff. Um, and, you know, there are other access problems because some of the stuff costs money. But you, Absolutely. Like, or you can you can there are other ways that you can start without having to buy a five thousand dollar laser cutter. Um, but OK, so if I'm a, an educator in my institution who's excited about this, um <laughs> You know, how do I convince my administrators that it's 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 not just about 
you know, the tests, because that's uh, quite honestly, too, at DePaul, these are one of the, this is one of the challenges that, that um, we face is, and we, we receive these, these freshman students. And a lot of the students are, are asking us, like, what is the quickest way to get to the answer? And that presumes two things. One, that there's like one, an answer. right? That, right. Two, two, that there's an answer and that there's only one answer. And one, that there is one way to get to the, to any answer. Right. Um, and, and, and so like, how do, how, how do institutions, um, you know, uh, how, how do we sell this to, to institutions that face that challenge of, of, you know, where their administrators are thinking like that too? Yeah. That's, I mean, so I don't know if I have an answer. I, I actually, I, know, <laughs> I, don't, I don't have an answer to that, but I have some, I have some, um, some anecdotal stuff on that. I mean, one I think is important, uh, get administrators to visit spaces so they can see it. Cause like I said, I think a lot of what the value in the environment that I have at lane or in our, in my lab, um, is really hard to put on paper, but I don't think it's very hard to feel. I don't think it's very hard to see and feel. And so if people come in and really see what the environment is like and see kids working in it and talk to the students, I think, I think that that um, goes a long way. So I've had administrators that come through. Like I said, I've never had anybody come through, and if they if they have negative thoughts about it, which is t- quite possible, they sure don't share them, and they also sure don't do a good job of acting like they're not enjoying themselves. <laughs> I mean, like people that come through there seem to really enjoy being in there and and um, feel that it's a creative space and feel that it's a um, inviting, collaborative. Right. problem solving sort of environment. And so I think helping them feel that will help them realize why they want it. It might be hard for them to justify it on the other end, but I think getting administrators and their decision makers can be yeah. of great value. And uh, that, go, oh, go ahead. that that connects, I think a lot to kind of every, the whole ethos that you were talking about before too, which is it, 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 you have to make it real it has to be physical or tangible or in front of you. Um, and outside of that, you know, it's, it's possibly, uh, well, anyways, but that's, that's a powerful learning experience. So whether it's, you know, your students um, using digital fabrication tools to manifest something, or it's having to bring an administrator into the space rather than showing them numbers about the space, you know, all that seems interlinked in some way. And in, in other words, you, you've got to touch it and you've got to feel it in order to understand um, its impact. And it's not just a matter of discourse. It's not just a matter of numbers or whatever else. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's and there's and so people like you have done a lot more work in this area of trying to um, to show what what the value is in this. And I appreciate it to no end. And I know that I feel like I'm I'm like waiting, and then someday someone's going to be like, "All right, it's your turn. Justify everything." I'm be like, "Ah, uh, I don't know if I can do that." But the the um, there's, you know, studies and I've been a part of some of them are collaborating with some different universities and grants that are focused on, um, on what these spaces do, like what, what the outcomes can be of, of students learning this kind of stuff. It can be, you know, there's been studies on spatial, uh, spatial understanding and showing that students that have a better understanding of three-dimensional space and how to work with something in three dimensions that that translates to being able to understand other things and perform better on this and that and these tests. And so, I mean, that's not my, my overall goal, but I think there are people doing valuable work out there to try and, um, for lack of a better way to say it, uh, like make, give more quantitative yeah. or more, like more, um, direct research, like, examples of why these things have impact you know why a impacts b um i'm over there doing a a lot and i really feel really good about a and i really trust that a is great but i don't really know how to show on paper that it relates to b right yeah yeah, and and the the um i I don't know how i'll how i'll be able to show that at some point but i can tell you that like again anecdotally the principle at the school likes to bring people through. They, they always, ever since I've had this space, they like to bring people through um, the environment. There's gotta be a reason for that. Like they like being right. bringing people through and they like showing the environment to um, prospective students, like kids that are thinking about what school they want to um, try and, and go to, if they're going to go to a select enrollment school. And I don't think it's just like, I to ask myself sometimes, is that an eye candy thing? But then I think, well, I mean, people already know that they're going to a school 
to learn about what they're going to learn about, right? If you're visiting a school, you want to learn about what that school has to offer. And so I don't think it's an eye candy thing. I don't think people walk in, they're just like, it's got lasers, let's do it. You know, like, uh, I think that people, when they come through the space, they, and I'm speaking for everybody, which is probably bad, but I, I think that they feel that they're in an environment that's productive and conducive to learning and, and experimentation and creativity and, and they want that for themselves or they want that for their kids. And so that, that's the kind of thing that makes, that helps me feel like I'm doing something right. Like, uh, like I'm on the right path. If people come through and feel good about it and tell me that they like being in there, I don't, I don't know how to make it, um, you know, write it down Yeah, because it's feelings stuff, but, <laughs> but that is the kind of thing that makes me feel like people that, that, that something's going right. That's an environment that, is um, creating positive change and not, not making things worse. That's great. So I think that's, we're, we're at almost like an hour and that's about as good of a place to wrap up as, as any. Um, sure. But um, you know, a couple, I really appreciate the, the conversation, Jeff, you, you, you've done a whole bunch of stuff that I, I have, um, I find, you know, we, we were talking before about how, when you, you left your job in, in the tech world, you know, that's a, that was a significant um, change, right? Yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, and I did the same thing too. And I, I've always appreciated the people who kind of jump into something because they have a passion for, for their students, um, and, and for, you know, for caring for them. So that's, that's pretty cool. And I appreciate it. Oh, Thank you. Same. Um, uh, yeah. So I, but I, I appreciate you taking time to talk, I guess. And I just, you're an outstanding human being so no um, thank you I, I like i like working with good people and yeah. um and it's i've from the second i walked into your space and saw what you were doing and and met you and started talking it was like talking to a, a long lost friend I, I i really appreciate all the work that you've been doing and um and, and your wife too and um i'm glad that there are people like you doing a better job than people like me of <laughs> getting the right information down and out and written and <laughs> it's a, it's a needed part of the whole process. And so I'm, I'm glad you're at the helm for a lot of that. Well, we'll see, hopefully, uh, or it could all set on fire. So, uh, <laughs> the fires are good too sometimes. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, so the, one of the ways I like to wrap this up is by asking you if there's anything you want point to point people towards anything that you want them to check out, uh, websites, you know, sure. what, what do you got? Um, yeah, sure. If, um, probably the best thing to go do is, uh, to check out, give two websites, but one is cs.lanetech.org. And so that's our department's website and, um, encourage people to look at the courses, um, the courses page. We've been working really hard as a department to, to change the way that courses are sort of pitched to students and trying to get less jargony where I think in, in techie type stuff, you get a lot of jargon and people try and say, this is really important because here's a bunch of words you don't know. But I think that has a negative effect on drawing more students and re- helping more students realize that learning about computer science can be really fun and creative. And so we're trying to retool our descriptions of classes to be um, more approachable and um, help students realize what that class is about like what would you be learning about and what would you be doing in there and what would the experience be so we're doing videos uh like little two minute videos where there's a voice um a voiceover from a teacher explaining what the course is about and some videos so that kids can kind of dive into the class and not just lane i would i want to point people to that not just lane students but other people so that um they might learn about what courses are being offered at a high school what kind of computer science is happening and then maybe that'll spread and other schools will want to start offering similar stuff or realize the importance of offering computer science. So that would be my first um, one. And the, the second site would be ltmakers.org. So the name of our lab is the LT Makers Lab. So LT is in Lane Tech and then makers.org. And that's the site um, I put together that just kind of showcases and uh, showcases some of the work that we're doing. And there's a there's a little like a press section. So we've had some articles written about some of our projects and things like that. So, uh, and then if you're interested in seeing what some of the students are doing on a regular basis, you can follow us on Twitter, um, which is just at LT makers. Um, 
Yeah, and I think that's probably it. And if you want to follow our computer science department, it's at at Lane Tech CompSci. And that's cool. kind of where we like push stuff out and try and connect with other people doing fun stuff. And so I guess that would be my that would be my main main <laughs> sites to pitch. <laughs> cool. All right, Jeff. Well, thanks so much for joining, and uh, I really appreciate your time. Like I said, and um, I, you know, I hope people find this as as useful as as I did. Yeah, I hope so too. And thanks a lot for reaching out and asking me to be a part of it. I'm I'm uh, honored to even be asked. So hopefully it's uh, it's valuable. <laughs> yeah, number twenty. All right, number twenty. Yeah, that's right. There's something <laughs> in that. <laughs> and that about wraps it up for session twenty. An interview with Jeff Solon from Lane Tech's Makerspace and um, all around awesome guy. Thanks for listening. Uh, Stay tuned. Next week, we're going to be listening to Sasha Neary, who runs Harold Washington Makerspace, um, which is a library makerspace in the heart of downtown Chicago. I'm super excited about the interview with Sasha, and I think you're going to enjoy it too. I want to thank Jeff Solon for talking with me uh, for this episode and, and for all of his insight and kind of thinking about how he does all of his, his, his own work at, at Lane Tech. And uh, I hope you enjoyed it too. As always, if you enjoy This Should Work, like, subscribe, all that good stuff on iTunes, Overcast, SoundCloud, and whatever else you're listening to us on. And stay tuned next week for Sasha Neary in Session 21. All right, see you then. Thank you.